Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Hey, welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm lead pastor, and we're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching or listening from. If this is your first time joining us, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. If you fill out this short form online for us as a way of saying thank you, we're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. Well, it's taken us four weeks, but here we are. We're at the end of Romans 1 here today. And uh, we start with Paul's opening remarks in the first seven verses where he lays out that we are a part of God's salvation story. And then we got an inside look at his pastoral heart in verses 8 through 15. Really the challenge for us is, you know, do we have a faith like that of the Roman Christians? Do people know you by your faith and has it impacted others for Christ? And then last week, we parted into verses 16 and 17, which I believe forms much of the foundation, theologically speaking, for Paul's letters. Paul has a shameless faith. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, can you say the same? Do you have a shameless faith? Now, he finishes verse 17 with a quote from an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. Now it's through faith that a righteous person has life. Verses 16 and 17 describe how the righteous live. The people who are made right with God, by, that, that's what righteousness refers to. They live by faith. And what Paul is going to do is contrast what it looks like to live not by faith, but by our sinful desires in the rest of the text to finish up chapter 1. So I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 again because I want you to see how it's connected with what Paul is going to write next. But before I do that, I want to tell you, man, uh, today's teaching is going to be, it's going to be tough, okay? Uh, it's not going to be short. We're going to bite the bullet. It's, it's a hard text. It might be the hardest text you've come across yet in Scripture. But if you believe all Scripture is useful and inspired by God, as 2 Timothy 3 says, then you've got to deal with passages like this one here today. And, and I'll say this, it's not the only hard text in Romans. Romans is full of difficult passages that are going to challenge you. But at Radiant, we're committed to God and His Word. That means we're going to tackle these kind of hard texts. And you're going to be offended, and that's okay. The gospel offends every one of us, and that's part of God's transformation process in our lives. So, verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight, and this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the Scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Now, he's going to shift to verse 18 in the sinful desires. But, Always pay attention to conjunctions and their transitions. They're not standalone. They're more like you know hinges that connect to a preceding text uh, that you can't fully understand apart from one another. Okay, but God shows His anger, He says, from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities 
his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or give thanks to him. And they became the think up of foolish ideas of what God was like. And so as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, birds and animals and reptiles. Which, by the way, we're still doing this today. And I'm going to show you in a little bit how we're poised to do this on a whole another level in the future. Verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself, who's worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserved. Look at verse number 28. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. And their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. Uh, they're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. All the parents said, amen. <laughs> they refuse to understand, break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. They know God's justice requires they do these things and they deserve to die, but they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's a tough, tough text, isn't it? Now, as, as a kid, I, I had this view of God that fit this passage kind of well, like at least on the surface anyway. I was afraid to go to hell. So I had a hard time picturing God as anything other than this old white guy with lightning in his fist, like ready to judge you and let you burn. So I got saved like all the time. <laughs> like I, res I responded to every altar call because I, I didn't want God mad at me. I didn't want to go to hell. You know, like any of you guys relate to that. Here's the thing. That's a weak view of God. It's a view that requires you to be absolutely perfect, like you can never sin. And if you do sin, and you get hit by a car, or a hippo sits on you, or like, I don't know, it's whatever, you, you can't ask God to forgive you because you're dead and gone. So it's hell with you, right? And that, that's not how this whole thing works, though. Uh, that view doesn't adequately explain how God saves you. And we're going to get to that later in Romans as well. But when you read this passage, you kind of get the sense that God's angry, don't you? Like it sounds initially like God's just, he's just mad. Like he's turning all that rage and wrath towards you. But is that accurate? Like what if I told you that God reveals his deep love for us in a passage like this? If you're a parent, you actually understand this passage in a way that those of you who aren't parents can't quite grasp yet. See, parents love their kids, but they realize they have to judge and punish them. They have to be disciplined. A loving parent disciplines their children. A parent who is cold doesn't. Here's the thing. God loves you. Everything God does is rooted in love. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. Love is not an ethic that emanates from God. Love encompasses who God is. It's the overarching reality of God's nature and reveals how he operates because everything stems from his love. But if you've ever experienced religious wrath and judgment, that can be hard for you to grasp. And so in this passage we're in today, Paul again draws a distinction. We first saw this a couple weeks ago. He talked about salvation being for the cultural insiders, or the 
the Romans, right? And cultural outsiders or barbarians. He echoed the same thing in our teaching last week, noting salvation first belonged to the Jew, then the rest of humanity. And now he creates another division with that conjunction in verse 18. But, see, See, verses 16 and 17, they're all about how the righteous live by faith. And then you get to verse 18, and Paul begins to switch gears a little bit and dive into how the unrighteous live by their sinful desires. The righteous are those who are made right with God, and they live by faith. They live by the Word of God. They don't have it all figured out yet. They live by faith in Christ and not in their own self-confidence. Now, you say, you know, hey, wait a minute, Pastor. Like, I was born this way. I was raised this way. This is all that I know. Well, that's why you have to be born again, man. <laughs> the righteous live by faith. The unrighteous live by their sinful desires. What's your sinful desire motivating you to do? Well, it motivates you to engage in immorality, right? Hey, well, God knows my heart. He knows this is just how I'm wired. Well, then you have to be rewired. Let the power of God work in your life and transform you. Because if you continue to live out the sinful desires you have as a follower of Jesus, you're actually living an unrighteous lifestyle. And that's a hard truth. This message and this text, they don't fit well in a culture whose message is, you be you. Right, the question this passage forces the reader to answer is, will you live by your faith or live by your sinful desires? And the choice is yours. But Paul's going to lay it out pretty clear here. The unrighteous live with God's judgment and wrath on their lives. Now, I want you to see something here that you probably missed perhaps the first time you read the passage. God's wrath is not directed at any one particular person. Is God angry with you? Is he angry at people? No. God's wrath here is against the sinful desires of people. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the New Living Translation. We use that primarily here at Radiant. But in this one instance, the NIV captures the Greek language pretty well. It's not wicked people. It's the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. So God's not angry at you. He's angry that you live a life dominated by sinful desires. 1 Corinthians 10, 15 says God hasn't tempted us in any way, which is not common to humanity. Not only that, He's provided a way out for you. Well, given that knowledge, you can make a claim that God's wrath is against the sin, which suppresses the truth, and as the text shows, oppresses us. And that's what sin does. It oppresses you and enslaves you. And if that's your choice to live that way, you know, God has to show His wrath against the sin that's actively at work in your life. And so the question here is, is God angry or are we foolish? If I'm offered the choice between, you know, ice cream and a mud pie, and I choose the scrumptious mud pie, okay, am I the fool for ordering it, or is the waiter the fool for bringing it to me? I, I'm the fool, right? Is the waiter angry? No. Like, I asked for it. Is, it, is he disappointed? Probably, because he's going to wonder, like, why did he choose mud pie? I got ice cream over here. Like, God's not angry at you, but the foolishness that your sin brings incurs the wrath of God. So, you know, like, we have this gift of free will, and it's on full display in Genesis 3, by the way. Like, sin had not entered the world yet. God makes Adam and Eve, and he says, hey, do what you want to do. And by the way, do it naked. Come on, somebody, right? No boycott in Target. We're all naked here. Anyway, so God says, eat from any tree you want to eat from, but not this one over here, because if you do, you'll die. So Adam and Eve, they chose that mud pie, man. They chose what was wrong, and they had to face their consequences as a result. Is God angry, or are we foolish? Every time we sin, God's not angry at us. He's angry at our foolishness. And it's foolish decisions which cause spiritual decay and deterioration. Paul says something else which is hard to accept in verse number 19. He says this, 
They know the truth about God because He's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen this earth and the sky. And though God made everything, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. And so they have no excuse for not knowing God. And you say, how in the world is that possible? Well, there's two ways that God reveals himself and who he is to humanity. One is divine revelation. That's God revealing himself through his word, the person and work of Christ. The other is natural revelation, which Paul's talking about here. Natural revelation is God revealing himself in creation. The evidence is so clear and present that you have zero excuse for not knowing God because evidence is all around you. Now, I will tell you that I firmly believe it takes more faith than even what I have to believe that this is all a cosmic accident created through a complex series of chemical reactions and energy. Like I look at the stars, the human body, molecules and atoms, the theory of gravity. Like I struggle to believe it's all by happenstance. The burden of proof is not on God. It's on any and every other explanation that's out there. I mean, if we're two inches closer to the sun, we burn. If we're two inches further away from the sun, we freeze. The earth is tilted on its axis at the perfect position so every square mile on the planet could support life even for cats okay <laughs> imagine for a second though taking a rolex apart putting all the pieces in a bag and then shaking the bag for 10 billion years and when you're done all the pieces come together perfectly for the watch to operate as it should with the exact correct time like, I just can't buy that. So for me, it takes far more sense to place my faith in a divine creator than chance. Psalm 14, 1 says it's the fool who claims in his heart there is no God. So is God angry or are we foolish? Now, natural revelation doesn't save you. It only points you in the right direction. Humanity is keenly aware of the existence of God, and, and man has marched in the right direction for centuries, but gotten off course. So, like, you know, the Egyptians were smart enough to know something beyond themselves existed and created the world. They marched in the right direction, natural revelation, okay? But they got off course. They worship not the creator, but the elements. And so Ra becomes the sun god. Kanum is the god who dwells in the Nile and causes flooding to water the crops. They elaborate myths and give their gods personalities and they bribe them with sacrifices and sexual rights. And we look at that today and we're like, well, that kind of makes sense, right? Ancient history, they didn't have science. Uh, they didn't understand how the world worked, you know. Like, we're, they, they were going with what they knew. We are totally different, right? We don't worship idols and have statues. We're better than that. That's... Really? Like, are we? Like, we don't worship the almighty dollar? We don't sacrifice our children in the same spirit as the ancients did with the god Molech. Like, we're way past safe, legal, and rare in the abortion sphere now. Like, depending what state you live in, you can opt for an abortion for any reason whatsoever up to the time of birth. So you mark my words, man. Like, I love tech. I'm really excited about the advances of artificial intelligence. But we're about a few years away from, from artificial general intelligence, or AGI. That's far more advanced than anything you've ever seen on this planet. It's not Siri or assisted, okay? You don't think people will begin to think of AGI as a godlike figure? It's smarter than any human on the planet. It knows everything. It can take care of your needs. I mean, there are articles out now about people who've already assigned romantic intimacy with their artificial chatbot because it gets them. 
One article I shared with a group I led this past spring, it asked if we should not consider the worship of AI whenever AGI is finally achieved. And part of the author's premise was that she believed it would be inevitable for humanity to begin to worship artificial intelligence. Look, a lot has changed in 2,000 years, but I'm telling you, man, humanity hasn't. History does not repeat, but it does rhyme, and boy, we're rhyming a lot right now. The worship of anything other than God is idolatry. Money, sports, politics, people, tech, whatever, it's foolish. So again, is God angry or are we foolish? Here's the next question I want you to think about. Who's really in charge? Look at verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, and so they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and, and instead indulge in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having the normal sexual relations with women, they burn with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of the sin, they suffer within themselves the penalty they deserved. Questions about what God does or doesn't allow are actually secondary. The only question worth asking is this one right here. Who is in charge? Is it you or is it God? You know, like, I, I give not because of where I fall in the discussion over tithing. Like, I give because God's in charge of my life. I serve because God's in charge of my life. I gather together with other people because God's in charge. I try, though flawed, to show respect and follow rule and order with those in authority over me because God is in charge. Central to Christ's message throughout the Gospels was that God is king and you're not. Notice in the passage we just revisited how God does not fight humanity's misplaced worship. He gives people what they want. It's like, hey, you, you want to do that? Like, go for it. There's a penalty. There's consequences. I've warned you, but hey, like, you know, that's your choice. Paul mentions that God abandoned or gave humanity over to their sinful desires three different times in this passage here today. The point being is that you can choose the course you want to take, but you got to understand you're choosing between living a godly life or a righteous life by faith and a life governed by your sinful desires. Now the big fuss everyone makes with this passage is Paul's use of homosexuality. He, he, he gets in other sense as well, um, but he does make it a point to highlight this one first. And we're going to walk through an entire message on God's design for sexuality in September with a series called You Asked For It. So I don't want to jump too far into this today um, because for Paul, he's actually not focusing on homosexuality as the issue. For him, the issue is the destruction of God's creation and natural order as a result of sin. When he's writing the letter from Corinth, he's writing uh, under the shadow of Aphrodite's temple. All kinds of heterosexual and homosexual activity happened there. Pedophilia, it's accepted, right? We think the trans thing's new, it's not. Many priests in Aphrodite's temple would dress as women. They would mutilate themselves in an effort to become a woman. It was very dark, it was very wrong, but the cultural lightning rod of transsexualism that we're seeing today, it's not new, it's been around for a long time. It was happening when Paul penned this letter. What needs to be said though, is that any sexual immorality, any sexual sin is wrong. It goes against God's plan and design. And those who engage in sexual sin, they're at risk of incurring God's wrath. And that's what the penalty Paul talks about is. It's God's judgment, His wrath. And this includes homosexuality, transsexualism, every alphabet of the LGBTQ plus library. It includes pedophilia, pornography, sleeping together outside of marriage. 
boy, I know I sound old school with that one. I get it. But God's design for you is not to move in together and play house and see if this relationship will work once you say I do. His design for you is to become one in His sight and give yourselves to each other, sacrificing yourself and your individuality so you become one with the rest of your your lives. I die so Christ may live. I die so my marriage can thrive. It's not about me. It's about my wife and I's life together. It's just as wrong to live together and sleep together as it is to engage in pedophilia or porn or any other sexual activity you want to bring up. So what do you do with a hard text like this? Well, Paul doesn't bring down the hammer and scream, you're going to hell! Like, you know, what he's saying is this is not natural and it's not God's design. And you can live this way if you want to. It's your choice. But remember, there's a whole wrath thing you got to watch out for because there's consequences. And so what do you do then is you give your porn addiction, your lust, your trans struggles, your sexual sin, you give it over to Jesus. Because it's the righteous who live by faith, not sin. Verse 28 and 32, Paul moves to other ways we give over to sinful desires. He's going to list greed. Some of you guys, man, you hustle so hard. You're sacrificing your family, not because you're trying to better them, but because you're never satisfied. It's okay to improve your family. It's okay to work hard, but don't become a slave to greed. Don't be the person who can never reach a point of, of, of having, you know, not having enough. I, I'm never being satisfied with wealth and success because that can be a trap. He lists murder. Christ says, hey, if you're angry unjustly in your heart, you've committed murder. He lists lies and gossip. Can I tell you, nothing harms people in the body of Christ more than gossip. And so many people are guilty of doing it. I mean, just look at the list he gives in, in verses 29 through 31. Uh, do you resonate with those? Because if I'm honest with you, like, like I do, that last verse, man, verse 32, that rings close to home. It's not enough to live according to sinful desires, but those who do often encourage others to do the same. And I think we're seeing that play out in our culture here today. Some people want to assign different levels of, of sin, but I don't fall into that camp. Sin is sin. And God judges it all the same. If you don't turn from your sin, you're living a foolish life. And it's that decision which incurs God's wrath, which begs this final question, how can God love us in wrath? It's a hard text. It doesn't seem like God loves you at all, right? And undoubtedly, some of you might say, well, well, God accepts me as I am. I was born this way. Why did he make me like this? And I would say to you, if that were true, he would never have had to send Jesus. Because the truth is God loves you too much, man, to leave you the way that you are. None of you are, no, well, none of us, because I'm included in this, are, are found by God living the life he has for us. He has to change us. God doesn't accept us the way we are because his wrath is being directed at the unrighteousness within us. It's directed at our foolishness and at our sin. The truth is, God, God can't be around sin because he's holy. Leviticus 19.1, the Lord says, be holy because I'm holy. Why? Why do we got to be up there with God? Well, because God can't be in the presence of sin. And yet God desires relationship with you and you and I. He calls you to live for a, a more, to be connected to his holiness. And so many of us have been taught to believe we can control our sin. We can suppress that evil desire and God will God'll just be okay with that. But that's not true. You can't because sin will own and control you. And God doesn't call you to control anything. You don't have control of sin. You have to, 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 to forget the idea that you can be better because you can't. You have to be in relationship with Jesus, the one who is good enough. You don't have the power to control your sexuality, your sin, but the gospel can give you new hope and new life and a transformed spirit. You just have to stay close to the Lord. And so that just sounds too easy. 
Like if it's too good to be true, we're taught what? It, it has to be, right? Well, God poured out his wrath on Christ. Romans 3.25 says this, that God made Christ the propitiation for our sin. I know you're like, what in the world does that mean? It means that Jesus satisfied God's wrath on the cross when he became sin for us. The bill for our sins coming due. When we enter into eternity, God's going to collect it from all those who have not followed Christ because it's Jesus who paid the bill for you. He satisfied God's wrath for you. You can't do it yourself. You can't control sin because sin controls you. But Jesus really did pay it all. It's not just the song we sing, it's true. He's taking care of God's wrath for you. You don't have to take on the wrath of God if you walk by faith. But if you choose to continue living according to your sinful desires, you'll pay when the bill comes due. The good news is God's salvation can and will transform you. He's not angry with you. He's angry at your foolish choices. He sent Christ to pay the price for you so you don't have to keep living the way you've been living. He poured his wrath out on Jesus so you don't have to endure it and you can choose to turn to him. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us that whether we're dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. What a, what a powerful word from Paul to the Thessalonian Christians. It means that God's given you a way out. It's not the perfect to live a life by faith. It's the righteous. You're made right with God. You're in the family. You belong to Him when you say yes to Jesus. It doesn't make you perfect. It makes you covered. Now, I know this is a heavy word from a heavy text, but know that God hasn't destined you for His wrath. He sent Christ to take care of that, to pay your bill, because He doesn't want that for you. But He leaves the decision in your hands. I want you to think of God as a, as a shepherd for a moment. You know, Christ tells a story in Matthew about the relentless search a shepherd goes on to find one lost sheep. And that little sheep is so important to him, he leaves the 99 other sheep who are safe to go find that lost one. And so many scoff and they're like, well, it's just one sheep, let it go, you know? But that, that one sheep is important. It, it eats and sleeps and stays with the other sheep at all times. Man, it's precious to the shepherd. It doesn't matter if it's strayed away from the flock for all the wrong reasons. It doesn't matter that the sheep brought the condition on itself. To the shepherd, that sheep is everything. And maybe that little sheep has made the wrong choice before. Maybe he wants to go to the brook when the shepherd's taking the whole flock to the pasture. Maybe he wants to keep grazing when it's time to go up into the pen. He keeps making the wrong choices and the shepherd knows at some point this little sheep is going to find himself in a whole lot of trouble. And now, of course, he has. He's lost. Can't be found. So when the shepherd finds the sheep, depending how many times it's strayed away, he may do something which is going to sound really cruel and inhumane. He might take that little sheep's legs and actually break them. Now, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Like, why would he do that? Because this judgment, this wrath is for the sheep's own good. For the next several weeks, as those legs begin to heal, the sheep can't eat, can't drink, can't sleep without the shepherd allowing it to do so. And once those legs heal, that little sheep is so dependent on the shepherd, he never leaves that shepherd's side. He stops making wrong, selfish choices, and instead he listens to and follows the shepherd's voice. I think sometimes when God gives us over to our desires and, and, and wrath results, it's not out of anger. We've already established that. Rather, it's to teach us an important lesson of dependence. We need God. No matter how far we've strayed, what we've done, as we see in more in Romans, we'll see more in Romans, God is relentlessly pursuing you because you're everything to Him. And once you come to that realization, you're not disillusioned by who God is or what His wrath's all about. Instead, 
you actually come to fall crazy in love with the Creator who gave everything up for you. Whether you're watching or listening right now, you might be driving, working out, hanging around the house. But you're watching or listening and you say, Pastor, I, I'll be honest with you right now, I, uh, whew, I'm under God's wrath, I think. I can't say that I know God. It's a hard text, I get it, but I, I, there's some things that aren't right in my life and I, I, I gotta change. What do I do? <laughs> well, where do I start? Well, I wanna say a prayer for you. And I want you to say this prayer in your own words uh, along with me. I'm gonna model it for how it should go. And then you say it with me, wherever you're at. We're gonna take, take the first step to make Christ our savior. He's gonna save us from our sins and then to make Him Lord, where He's going to be Lord of our life, meaning our lives not our own anymore. I'm going to surrender my life to Him. That's the first step in your salvation process. So let's pray that together, can we? God, I, I'm so sorry for my sin. I realize that I could be under Your wrath. I realize I've, I've done things that, that I'm, I'm not proud of, Lord. They violate Your standards. They go against You and who You are. And I'm here today, Lord, to say that I, I need You. Will you please forgive me for my sin? Will you cleanse me of my wrong? Will you save me here today? And Jesus, I just want you to know that, that, that I, I've tried to do things on my own to make my own way work and carve my own path. And I found that it just blows up my face and doesn't work. So I, I'm, I'm going all in today. I'm not asking you just to save me. I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior. I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm not going to call the shots. I'm going to let you lead me. Will you guide me and lead me and pull me in the direction I need to go in? Will you walk with me every step of the way that I take? Will you take charge in my life? And I'm going to do everything I can from this day forward to commit myself to following after you and living for you and serving you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.